You're listening to the You Got Job podcast. This is episode 34. Hello and welcome to the You Got Job podcast. I'm here today with Gil Prowler. Hey, Gil. Hey, Suzanne. <laughs> so I interviewed Gil for the McSweeney's website, and uh, he had um, uh, just a ton of crazy stories, and uh, I thought people would appreciate hearing him tell them in person. So, um, Gil, what do you or do? Do you prefer Gil or Gilbert? Gil's fine. Okay. You don't have a lot of time for Gilbert. Gil is good. Okay. And uh, well, so what have you been doing all your life? Well, in my line of work, I'm usually doing one of three things. I'm usually working, working for work, or running down checks. That's kind of what a freelancer does. And you're a freelance camera person? Camera person, that's right. Video, and, film. Yep. And what kind of things? Tell me about some of the craziest things you've filmed. Oh, it's such an easy question for you to ask. It's so hard for me to answer. Yeah. There's just a lot of stuff. I mean, it's. Okay. The first, some of the first few things you ever, like one of your first jobs. Oh, well, my first job was basically running, uh, running around a truck at a rental house in Hollywood um, and dropping off gear and learning a little bit about the business and then kind of going freelance from there. Before that, I, uh, I lived in New York, so I'm from Brooklyn, and I worked at a uh, film commune, you can call it working, they didn't pay us, and uh, that's where I first started shooting things. Yes, and I remember when we were talking now, I, I didn't read your interview specifically, so I would kind of forget what we talked about, but now I'm remembering your freewheeling life in <laughs> New York. <laughs> It was rather shocking for me. But um, yeah, I lived down in the, the Lower East Side off of 14th Street and uh, like in the early 70s, mid 70s. It's a long time ago, I know. And uh, New York kind of had like a real Fritz the Cat kind of vibe then, um, kind of an urban version of the Wild West. And this film commune was a couple of apartments in the apartment building. What we did is we maintained the apartments and in return, we got free lease and had a lot of space to shoot uh, whatever films we wanted to shoot, kind of like the commune. We had a kitchen and people shared apartments. How did you How do you find a commune to become a part of? You know, it wasn't that easy then. There was no internet to speak of. So I think I must have just seen an ad in some underground newspaper in the city and ended up over there. And since I was just starting out, kind of in a business after college, you don't have a lot of choices to make a living and, and they offered me a place to stay and learn kind of the business. So that's kind of, not many people want to do that. It's not like a, a, a thing people want to do, live for free in a commune. They wanted to like move right on and make money. To me, yeah. that's my place to start. What, what made it a commune? Just the fact that's kind of shared food, shared expenses, that kind of thing. Yeah, really no expenses um, because we, the landlord let us stay there. Whatever we needed to get in terms of money, we used to go around in a moving van and move people. We had a big old moving van there. 
or we do a little work for other apartment houses, like fix things that we didn't know how to fix, but they pay us anyway. And people gave us money to just get along because they thought it was kind of a cool idea. So we went along with it. It was kind of a great time to be in the city. Um, New York in those days was really wide open. And uh, if you were young and didn't have any responsibilities, it was perfect. And that was kind of me. Yeah. Well, I remember you said, like, what was what was the deal with the van that you had? Oh, yeah, we had a big old uh, moving van, like a UPS truck kind of, kind of make and model. And we used to be able to park it anywhere because it had commercial plates. So we used to just take it out at night and go party and just pull it up in spaces you shouldn't park in, but we could. And then we drive it across to Brooklyn or up in the city and New Jersey and drop furniture off for people and just kind of party in it. It was kind of a kind of a sweet deal. Uh, it was an interesting place. I got to say, if that's all I ever did in my life, it would be an interesting place. Um, Do you think you could I, still be doing that, like driving around in that van? Well, okay. Literally, no. But in terms of like, if that was a high point of my life, it probably wouldn't okay. It was so crazy. Uh, in those days, in the 70s, I had a lot of strange things going on. You know, and the place where I was living at really was kind of ahead of itself. They had a, you know, just a lot of people, you know, blacks, whites, Latins, gays, straights. Um, Philip Glass, who's a composer, had an apartment above ours. And he would practice there. So you'd hear his kind of music. Um, a lot of experimental filmmaking going on then. And the place I was living at was kind of described as a closing optional drug and sex-friendly commune. It's how the newspaper described it. So I think that kind of tells you what was going on there. Yeah. So, and then how did you, so how long did you stay in New York about? Uh, well, since I grew up there, it was a long time. But then um, in the city, in that place, about a year or so, we did a couple of films. Um, they were kind of a little bit wild films. And we did like a porno to pay for the films that these guys wanted to, which was, you know, a coming of age film for two gay guys. And uh, that's kind of what made the money to continue on their, their vision. What was uh, the format at that point? Was it VHS? Like super eight? No, 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 it was a 35 millimeter film. Oh, 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 I'm a moron. I don't know much about film. (laughs) It's uh, yeah. Don't hold it to the light. That's the one thing you need to know. Don't expose it before you shoot it. Gotcha. And it was, uh, it's a good place when you're younger because you didn't have the ability to get equipment like you do now, video gear. So to learn, I think a lot of people started out doing kind of underground videos and things like that, or I guess films, just so they could get the gear. Yeah. Nowadays, you just pretty much get a Fisher-Price camera when you're three years old and start shooting. Right. Not so long. Yeah, but back then you had like giant things of equipment. And did you guys... Did you own some of that equipment or had you guys rented it or you just somebody invested in it? It was too expensive to to own. We used to go rent from a rental house in New York. And uh, and I said that uh, New York was a very union town. So we were doing non-union, very, very non-union projects. And uh, we'd have to sit outside the rental house so that when we went to get the gear, there were no union guys standing out front to stop us, even though they had no business being there. So we wait for the for the rental house to call up, and and the rental houses would give us really good deals on it because they kind of saw what we were doing, you know, a bunch of kids making movies. They were, they were okay with that. Yeah, and then how how did you end up leaving New York? Um, well, I figured I'd rather be poor in California than uh, poor in New York, and this is the place to be, California, to make movies. 
So I just drove across country. And do you remember when you showed up, like, where did you live? A couple of my friends were already here. I had come out in the summer, worked at a golf course that was similar, very similar to Caddyshack. Um, years before Caddyshack, I mean, we had the hippie guy with the long hair and reflective sunglasses. You know, and one day I said, so uh, Greg, that was his name. They put him on gopher duty. And again, his big old five ton to drive around the golf course in Encino out here. One day I said, Greg, I've never seen uh, gophers. So what he would do, just like years later in the movie, is he would stick a hose down a hole, wait for a gopher to come up, and smack it on his head. So if he was in a bad mood, he'd throw the gopher on the green. But today, that day, I asked him, he he showed me like six of them in various forms, various forms of death huh. on the back of a five-ton truck. I mean, it was that kind of place. It was really <laughs> it was a great place to work when you're like, just out of school. It really was. So when I went out there, I, I lived with some friends and uh, I got a job at a local department store. And then I got a job driving a, a van in Hollywood for a rental house and just dropping gear off and kind of worked my way up the rental house till I was putting together film packages for clients and they would come in and pick them up. And then about a year and a half of doing that, I figured, well, now it's time for me to do that. So I left the job and started work freelance. So when you say you're putting together film packages, how does it work? Like, does somebody who wants to make a movie, they come in and they say they want to do such and such thing and you you help them figure out what equipment they need? Or Well, yeah, same now as it is in, in you know the video world as it was in the film world. They have, you have your basic packages with the camera, you know, body, camera body and lenses and support equipment like batteries and um, tripods, filters. So somebody would order up a package, quote unquote, and then you put together the package what they wanted. And they kind of knew what they wanted, but if they didn't, we just put it together for them. But we didn't really really look and see what their productions were. It was more like, okay, what do you need it for basically? You know, do you need yeah. 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter? How much do you want to spend? That kind of thing. Yeah. And then- but it was high it was high end stuff. It wasn't, you know, low end. It was expensive. Yeah, I honestly, I never, I don't know anything about, I don't know, photography or working with cameras, but did you, have you seen this movie called The Disaster Artist that was just out? No, not yet, but as it turns out, my son was talking about, they did a Burns and Sorrows, one of the film uh, companies, which is where I used to work. They oh, really? them. Yeah. Like where they but kind was... of get the equipment is the place where you used to work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. That's amazing, because, yeah, the, the guys basically, well, the thing the guy said was, I want to film this, I think he said I want to film it in 35 millimeter and video or something. I don't know. Yeah, I heard, right, which is like, and again, I was talking about this, yeah, it's kind of like, well, which one do you want? But you could do both formats, but I think for the purpose of the, the movie, he said he wanted both formats. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. It shows you really don't know what you want. Yeah. Or maybe you do. You're either a genius or an idiot. It could be either one of those. It's true. Okay, so you, so you, you just you did this for years, and you kind of you knew all the equipment now, and you kind of knew how to use it, and you just start getting yourself gigs. How'd you get yourself a gig? Well, I met people when I put their packages together, and I kind of let them know I was leaving work, looking for freelance work, and I got a job 
for like a 10 day job was the first job I got out of the rental business. And that, you know, 10 days at the rate of pay they give you is like a month of pay, you know, working for a rental house. So mm-hmm. from then on, I just kept on doing that. Do you remember what the first 10 day job was? It was a show for a newspaper where they did a Humphrey Bogart scene, black and white. And um, it was from Casablanca, but it was like advertising, subscribing to a newspaper. <laughs> so, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember about- who was doing it, too. I'm not going to name names, but, yeah, I remember it. You know, that's, yeah. Thank you for jogging that. <laughs> do you remember what came after that? So after So 10 days is up, and then you have to figure out where your next bit of money is coming from. Did you? How did that work out? Good. I mean, I did it for like 30 some years, so I don't know what, what the job was after that, but uh, it worked out okay. Yeah, I, I think I'll keep this. Yeah, yeah it became a career. I'm, I kind of knew I wanted to do that when I was younger. Yeah. So I wasn't married and have kids, and it's kind of a good time to do that kind of thing. And if that's all you know, it helps. I When I started working out on, you know, on the shows, we didn't, let's say we go to a carpet video or film in those days and uh, you talk to the people who work there and they look at us like we were crazy. Like, how can you have a job with so little security? And in those days, most people had security at their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had, did a good job for a big corporation, you could be there 30 years. And I kind of said, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, but this is what I want to do. But that's changed. You know, nowadays, no, there's no real loyalty either way. So I'm kind of like ahead of the curve on that. <laughs> what did your family think? What did they want you, know, you to work like in a watch factory or something? Who me? Yeah, like no. did you was your family like, okay, follow your dreams? Yeah, my parents were really good about it. Um they really, you know, as long as they didn't have to pay to keep me alive, they were happy. Yeah. And uh they were, they supported me and um they knew what I wanted to do, so they let me do it. Yeah. And they supported me in the sense that, you know, not financially so much as, yeah, do what you want to do. I mean, I had a college education, and when I was living in New York, my father was working for one of these uh, advertising companies on Madison Avenue, like during those uh, Mad Men days. Yeah. And when I was working at this film commune, I kind of had the choice. He said, well, do you want to come work in a mailroom of a fairly large advertising agency? And I had seen what he was doing. He was taking the train every day to work, and, um, you know, it wasn't the kind of life I wanted, so that was kind of like the fork in the road for me. It's like, no, you know, I appreciate it, you know, but uh, I think I'd rather do this. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, like, were there ever tough times when you were out in California where you were like, God, maybe I should go back and work in that mail room? No. <laughs> there were never times so tough I want to even get a job. I mean, I just want to freelance. So I think for people who want to do something bad enough, whatever it is, I mean, if you really believe you can do it, you know, just keep doing it, trying to do it. That's kind of my attitude. It wasn't really how much, what's the competition's like. It's like, what can I do to, to keep working? I mean, I think there's a lot of jobs and a lot of like filmmaking and probably painting and photography where a lot of people are very talented and could do well. But, you know, it's it's easier to do it and say you're going to do it than it is to make a living doing it. I think that's what separates a lot of people from doing what they want is being afraid they can't make a living doing it. And I wasn't afraid of that. I just figured I would. Yeah. All right. So uh, could you tell a little bit of that story you told me about 
filming something in Mexico. I think that was one of your first few things. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was one of my first shows. I was working on a film called El Norte, which was for American Playhouse. But we were filming down in Mexico. I came down here probably a third of the way into it to take the place of a camera assistant who was laid off. He was a Mexican national. So the crew was maybe five, six Americans, and the rest were locals that we hired. And uh, first thing happened is when I got down there, I was carrying – um, rifles with me. Um, they were they were not true rifles, but they looked like real rifles. And film stock. And when I got to customs, I I kind of figured I was going to be in trouble because there's nobody there to meet me. So as soon as they rolled down the belt and the customs agent in Mexico City opened it up and saw these rifles, and then I knew it was all I knew it was over. And sure enough, they took me to interrogation and uh, they sat me down for like four or five hours and want to know why I was there and what I was doing. And really, I had not much of an idea either. Except I was supposed to meet somebody. And then eventually let me go for some odd reason. And uh, it was like midnight, something like that. And uh, somebody was there with my name outside the terminal. And I said, okay, that's me. And we takes my, my stuff. And well, I didn't have the rifles anymore. Obviously, I didn't have the film that I came down here with. I didn't have my own personal gear because they took that. And he says, here we are. You know, well, I didn't really say it because he spoke Spanish. He might have said it. I didn't understand it. And uh, he had this uh, pickup truck. I think there's a pile of hay in it and uh, throws my stuff in the back. And uh, off we drove for a couple hours in darkness. And I figured, well, I thought we'd be like half an hour away. But he kept on going and going and going. And uh, I had my doubts momentarily as to if he knew what he was doing or where it was taking me. But, you know, I didn't really worry that much. And I uh, finally got to this place. There's a hacienda. And uh, we shot for a couple of days. And uh, about the fourth or fifth day, we went back to the hacienda. And there were a lot of soldiers there because the incoming president of Mexico was staying nearby. And this is what his support team was in, in the military. The day after that, when we came back from the shoot, um, in a, in a van, I was told by people who there that the, somebody had come, stolen the film, taken, kidnapped the uh, production manager, and they were looking to, to arrest all the Americans. So they threw our stuff in our car. We didn't even get out of, of the van and just drove around Mexico for a while. And eventually what happened was we ended up in Mexico City, and they contacted us, and they, they wanted $10,000 in American money in a park in the middle of the night, and uh, we delivered the money, and they returned the film. <laughs> so isn't it just in the days of, like, sometimes I, I think back to times before cell phones and the Internet and how I would, like, just meet friends for dinner or how we would make plans to meet each other in a city that neither one of us really knew. You know, like how you'd figure out something like that. How the heck are they contacting you? Like, first of all... I don't know if you remember any of this, but how how did they even let you know, hey, we've got your did they just tell the hotel, oh, we're taking this person, leave this note or something or Well, they didn't really tell them. They just went and did it. These guys had guns apparently and they took her and I guess they other we had other members of the crew who weren't out there who were still doing production work in offices. I mean it's a hacienda, it's in the middle of nothing. It was a strange looking building. It wasn't a quote unquote hotel, you know, it would have a front right. desk. Right, okay, right. And uh, when we got back, they told us that. I think uh, we stayed in touch with them by telephone whenever we we just drive around aimlessly around Mexico. 
and pull in one night to different places for a little while. And they, they were contacting through the Mexican production office um, what they wanted. Yeah. You know, they'd call, call them up, and then we would call them. Yeah, the production office worked as a central point of contact. And you were not scared? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't. I mean, to me, it was like an adventure. So uh, I kind of think I wasn't scared, no. I mean, there were people there who really were terrified and crying, and I just wasn't. Um, I'd gone to high school that had all sorts of racial disturbances and unrest. I was kind of used to stuff like this. I lived in New York, you know, in the time when it's kind of a crazy place. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. I don't think I was. Did you um, did you tell me something about – you sent me a bunch of pictures after we did our interview, and one of them was like – had something to do with Van Halen. Have you filmed Van Halen or something, or can you not say yeah, that? Yeah, that was one of the first concerts I did up in Oakland. Yeah, we did a Van Halen concert. That was like the first big show I did. And it was kind of like, wow, you know, it's, uh, it's a wow moment standing there. So we did that. We had like, you know, full access so we could walk around and kind of get the whole rock and roll vibe thing going. Do you remember what album that was for? Like what? Mm, the tour was um, Fair Warning Tour. I think it was around the early 80s. So yeah. I'm not sure what album um, it was a concert footage, but I don't know if they did a, an album from that tour. Yeah, yeah. But still, it was, I mean, obviously it was David Lee Roth time, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were rock and rollers, you know. <laughs> it was, you know, when I, when I started doing this, uh, well, before I started doing this, you think about kind of some of this stuff and you think, well, that'd be kind of cool one day to do. And then you're standing there and realizing there you are doing it. What other have you? Can you talk about what other jobs you had where that happened to you? That experience where you're just like, wow. Yeah, a lot. Of them. I mean, I'm kind of introspective about stuff when I'm standing there. You know, I think, well, how did I get here? You know, um, I did some stuff for. Uh, well, I went to Africa, and uh, this is one of the stranger things. We were going there with the estranged wife of the president of Gabon, which is on the western shore of Africa at the equator. And she had hooked up with some musician in Hollywood or Beverly Hills. And she was going back for the first time. She was a singer. And she had left under strange circumstances. And, and they were kind of worried when she came back because I guess in Africa, she was considered the mother of the country. Um, not what you consider Trump's wife to be here. They had a different kind of feeling. And... Uh, the first thing they did when they met us was herd us all into a room with machine guns, uh, the army there, and make us sit there while I figured out if they really wanted to let us in the country and what to do with us. And wait, of, what was your job in this situation? As a cameraman. For... It was like a documentary. Oh, okay. So I went over there with her band and a documentary crew and, uh, you know, maybe a dozen people. Mm-hmm. So they sat us in a room, and then uh, somehow, because like you said, we didn't have cell phones, someone contacted the American embassy, and they sent over some uh, Marines, but in plain clothes, you know, just like jeans, and they just kind of sat around with us to make sure nothing went too crazy. And then uh, they let us go, and then we just traveled around Africa, you know, Gabon, and the strangest part of that was when we were driving inland, further into the jungle, we saw this encampment of tents. Mm-hmm. And as we're driving further in the jungle, we found out that was the French Foreign Legion. 
I'm thinking, wow, we're going further into the jungle than a French foreign legion. And we did. And uh, that's a moment we start thinking, wow, okay, I don't think I'd be here in my life. That was one of those moments. Um, were you still in your 20s at that point, you think? Yeah, yeah. 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 20s, 20s, 20s. Hey, can I just ask, when you're filming like uh, Van Halen, um, <laughs> sorry, or any, yeah. any music show, like yeah. do you, where do you stand in the same place the whole time? Are you walking around with a camera? How do you make sure that you don't get in the way of anything? And have you ever gotten in the way and screwed up? Uh, well, you kind of know where the other cameras are. Um, oftentimes they have headphones, so you kind of know if you're in someone's shot. Uh, so on a stage, say if you're doing handle on a stage, you kind of know how far you can go. And if you push the limit, sometimes they'll try and cut you out of the frame because you have a really good shot. And sometimes they'll just tell you to step back. But you have to have a certain awareness. I think in, in the business, a lot of it, you have to have situational awareness. It really helps. No matter what you do, like even just crossing the street, it helps. Yeah. You know, look both ways. So that kind of is the thing you're looking to do is just stay out of their way and get the shot you need. Yeah. And did you say your wife is also a cameraman, a camera person? <laughs> yeah, she was in the 70s. She was one of the first, if not the first camera person in the film business. She had a rental house. She worked at another rental house. And she ran a rental house. And that's how we met. And she would go out and shoot different uh, shows because uh, she had the equipment at the rental house and they would hire her because she knew the gear. And mostly hired as a camera assistant because knowing the gear is more technical than actually shooting. Shooting is a little bit more of an art. And But she would go and she started to shoot things. And I'm sure it was difficult for her in those days because the equipment was quite heavy. And she was one of the few women on the set. Yeah. She was very understanding, which is good to have a woman as a wife was very understanding when you say, I don't know what time I'm going to be home. <laughs> yeah, and they get it. Cause you really don't know what time you're going to be home a lot. Yeah. It, you just reminded me of that other story, but now I'm like, I don't know if you want to tell that story or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably don't. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll just keep going. You can ask it anyway, because everyone already knows they read the article and my kids know just about everything about me. So who's like, that's a good point. Well, if you're going to run for political office or something, maybe. Well, no, it's too late anyway. Um, so, well, yeah, this it was Girls Gone Wild or something, right? What was it? I, I was uh, shooting a, a uh, video down, that video by then down in uh, Puerto Vallarta, um, Hot Bodies. Oh, and God. my wife was pregnant, and uh, my son came a little bit early. He was like, uh, while I was down here, he was born. Well, I was I was shooting a video of girls doing what girls like that do in a Mexican uh, nightclub when he was literally when he was born. Later on, I say, "Hey, you guys, want to see the video shot when my son was born?" And right away, you're thinking, "Well, no, because <laughs> it's going to be a bloody mess. No one's ever seen it because you know they don't want to see it." But that the video is really of girls like that doing what they do. And my wife called up, and you know, the next day I didn't find out for a day because it wasn't easy to speak to people and she said look i know uh you're having a good time why don't you just finish the job and come home when it's over i said okay i can do that so i stayed down here for a couple of days and i came home what was the name of it again hard bodies what's it called hot bodies 
Hot Bodies. Is that a movie or is it a video series? Oh, a series of videos where we traveled to, to a couple of places in Mexico and Colorado and San Diego. And they'd have these shows, you know, and um, yeah. I felt it. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were semi above board. Um, but, you know, there's always a backstory. So. Have you ever uh, said no to a job? Has anybody ever offered you a job that you were just like, no? Um, weddings. The weddings. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever done a wedding? I did one wedding, but it was like a regular wedding for some celebrity a long time ago. Their daughter was getting married or something. So it was like a real production. Mm-hmm. But in terms of me doing weddings as a freelancer, no. You know, I only started to turn down work later, you know, after doing it many years. But no, I pretty much take any job. I mean, ended up with three kids and, you know, you got to make a living. So I pretty much did any job. Yeah. Uh, you know, shooter. What uh, What are the majority of the types of jobs that you've done? Do they fall into any one category? Like mostly I've done ads or mostly I've done this or that? No, they don't. I've pretty much done everything. I mean... <laughs> Features and news shows and sports and concerts and uh, boxing matches, um, presidential press corps, American Gladiators. I worked on that show. Um, you did? So you've done politics and news shows and feature movies? Yeah, documentaries. And uh, well, I can't think of any quote unquote genre I haven't shot. Wow. Really. Well, what do you prefer to do? Well, I always like to do rock and roll stuff. I like to do live things. I mean, live is really where the energy's at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it depends on the show. They're all different. Some are better than others. You know, I did rocket launches. And I did it tonight show for a little while. Um, airplanes, Maxim Magazine. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I do remember, wait, but what do you mean airplanes? You shot airplanes. Fighter jets, you know, aircraft carriers, uh, military bases, going out there and shooting, uh, going on a runway and shooting them, taking off and landing and going through maneuvers. Is that for um, like the intro to Top Gun or is that for like, you know, military movies? What are, what are they shooting pictures uh, of? Those are, uh, like not really movies, to kind of documentary slash um, corporate videos. Okay. But um, they were, you know, rockets being launched. I did a shoot. Uh, what they would do is, uh, in Vandenberg, they would take a ICBM from Midwest, where they actually are, and they would take the crew out to Vandenberg on the West Coast, California, to see if the crew knew what they had to do and if the rocket would actually fire. So we went out and documented the crew down there in a the little hole where they slide against on the... The, the rails, opposite sides of the room. So when you turn the keys, no one guy can do it. And they did the whole thing. You know, they slid across, they turned the keys, they launched the rocket, the ICBM into the float out, float out in the Pacific Ocean. They did? Yeah. No, they want to know everything worked. They checked it. Yeah. They went that far. And then what they do is shortly before they launch it, they notify the world that they're launching this um ICBM. Oh, I had no idea. So you're in the room filming it as they're doing that? Well, we filmed them going through, you know, uh, seeing if they knew what they were doing. Then we went down a silo and, and shot the missile being prepped. And then we went into the control room where they were checking everybody and 
keeping in contact with the rest of the world. And that's where we actually shot the ending. We didn't actually go out and see the rocket take off, but we saw everything leading up to it. We shot all of that. <laughs> okay, so what's your confidence level then that, you know, the U.S. would be safe? <laughs> I don't know. Who <laughs> knows? You know, once it left, whatever they tell you, you got to either accept or not. Yeah, we, it went well. Or, no, it didn't go well. <laughs> they never say it doesn't go well. It's like, yeah, oh, perfect. Everything's nominal. You know, okay, good. Great. Well, the whole point then was just to see if everyone knew what they were doing. And um, apparently they did. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of moment. I mean, oftentimes I just stop some point of what I was shooting and say, wow. <laughs> It's like a uh, song, like, you know, do I, you know, do I deserve to be here kind of thing? Jeez. Well, I keep, I can't stop thinking about, uh, what is that movie? The, like, How I Learned to Love the Bomb. What's Dr. Strangelove? That's what I just yeah. keep, yeah. Yeah, we also shot some, you know, just missiles that were meant to uh, intercept, you know, other planes. We did that uh, someplace else. Can't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So from you've basically gone from like doing, of course, it slipped my mind again, the hard body thing. Hot body. Yeah. Hot body. This is all like, you know, like one day it's one job and the next day it's another job. And it's kind of different. I mean, I literally had two days of work where one day we were shooting a video about growing hair. <laughs> and the next day, literally, I shot a video about paint drying. You did not. I did. Yeah, believe me, I stopped on one of those things. Like, I can't believe I just did this. Two days in a row, not in my life. Hair growing and paint drying. <laughs> what? Um, what? Who's who is filming paint drying? For what purpose? For the company that was producing the paint. It was like a high-end paint. Oh. So uh, we were shooting them, uh, you know, laying the paint on the wall. And then watching to see how it dried and then seeing what it looked like when it was done. Right. And um, for the hair growing one, you were, were you like? Uh, John Paul Mitchell Systems, you know those guys? I've heard that name, yeah. They were doing that. Yeah, that was, you know, application of it, you know, videos like that. Do they use, don't they use like fake stuff to look, do they use like fake stuff to look like hair? You know how they use like mashed potatoes to look like ice cream or whatever? Chia pet? No, um, it wasn't like here it's growing. It's like it was an interview with uh, a doctor about explaining the uh, the reason why you'd want to use this product, you know, and then shots of people applying it to their hair and then like still shots of what it would look like eventually on somebody's head. Yeah. A bunch of interviews and like in the laboratory. <laughs> What's uh, so your favorite things to do live? So, or can you talk about whatever bands that were the most fun to do live or the most, or even not bands, even whatever was the most fun to do live? Yeah, I mean, kind of much all of them. I mean, I, going back to Van Halen, you know, it's, I don't do anything on a regular basis. So it could be uh, months before I do something again. So I think Pitbull, Keisha, Selena Gomez, uh, Groups like that, you know, not going on tour with anybody. The cult, did a show with the cult. The cult was the Maxim thing. Oh. Maxim yeah. Hotel. Yeah. Uh, hotel, Maxim Hotel. Maxim Magazine, a long time ago, rented out a motel in uh, Hollywood called The Farmer's Daughter. And uh, 
they took over the whole place and they put on this uh, kind of B list of people who came in and they had set up a stage in the courtyard of the hotel, the motel, and they had various little booths with, you know, open bars and condoms. And they had about a dozen rooms in the motel that each one was a different thing, like um, little people in one room and another one was people getting tattoos and another one was like an S&M room and we had cameras in all those rooms, you know, hidden, but not really hidden, no cameraman. And uh, then we had the cult playing at one point and I was filming that. I was a stage camera for that. And the uh, fire marshal felt that it was a danger to have everybody standing on the balconies. And he was probably right. And uh, I had to close it down. And nobody left. I was having too much fun. So then he called a fireman to come in, fire trucks, and they came. And a fireman came in, and they basically ended up just posing with the girls. <laughs> they had no desire to close it down. They were enjoying themselves. And he was getting more and more upset, the fire marshal. So he called the police. And this was around the time of, uh, I think it's the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. So these guys were all hot and bothered to check out how they would perform in a riot. So they closed the street down and brought the helicopters in. And then uh, the police came in and they closed it down. Um, That was kind of fun. Yeah. Where were you in all of the melee? I was, you know, by the band shooting the stage and uh, watching them all come through. Yeah. All right. Any other memorable stories you want to share? What stories make your kids laugh? Uh, uh, <laughs> I did that bear thing, you know, the brown bear thing. I did a, a movie called Goldie the Golden Bear. And we had a bunch of brown bears on the show or golden bears. And I have a photograph of me kissing the bear. You know, the bear's like right up on my face. And like that picture. Yeah. And how, how did you get... Tell me how that works again, because the bear, oh, yeah. the bear yeah, so wants to kill you. First, uh, well, honestly, I said first a twelve-year-old, like the stars, a twelve-year-old girl, she did it. You put a jelly bean in your mouth, and uh, and then after she survived, I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, so I did it. And what they do is to to get a bear to work. In this case, anyway, they have two bears that look similar. I mean, we can tell a difference really. And once one bear is full, because everything's on a command, and you feed the bear when he does right, then they bring out the other bear. And then when that second bear is full, if the first bear is hungry again, you can keep going on. If not, you have to shoot some stuff that doesn't involve bears. So um, that's how we did the bear thing. Can't have any food on the set. No food on the set except for the trainer. Because the bear will go right for you. It just seems like um, to have a hungry bear and then to go close to it with a tiny bit of food. In your mouth? Yeah. yeah. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> like, I don't know. It just seemed like okay to do that at the time. And apparently it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of get to know the bear. We knew each other. Yeah, it was safe. It's like the grizzly man guy. He thought it was safe. He's like, oh, I know these bears. No big deal. Oh, yeah. No, these bears, well, you know, they do have a chain on them. But you kind of have a leap of faith. I mean, a lot of this stuff is a leap of faith. And helicopters, shot outside of helicopters, that's kind of a leap you're not going to fall off of faith. 
tell me about that again. You just like you're strapped in kind of, or when was the first time you went up in a helicopter to film something? Uh, I did a couple of different ones. I can't remember the first one exactly. We did one where we went over San Francisco and filmed over San Francisco. Then I did one where we were doing uh, stunts. It was like a battle scene. So we were shooting uh, other helicopters as well as what was going on the ground. I did one that was a uh, one that for the military. We were doing war games, and we went up and uh, shot some of the war games uh, for the Marine Corps. Yeah, I, I did one I, over in LA for the MTA, um, where we were shooting, you know, traffic. You know, we we're trying to do a. I was working for the MTA when they were doing subway. Um, but on the subway, so we'd shoot the freeways to show how bad it was to be on a freeway. Right. And, and that was the purpose of shooting the freeways for a subway video. Right, to advertise for the subway. Yeah, yeah. I, that was uh, interesting because we would go, sorry, we would go, and, and when they did new um, stations, they would commission artwork for the different stations. And I went around, and among the things we shot was the, going to the artist galleries as they uh, finish their projects to be installed. Wait, I missed it. For the stations? Oh, for the subway stations? Yeah, they, they put artwork that they commissioned the MTA. Right. And, uh, we would go film them do that. And then, I mean, that, that's kind of what was made it interesting. I really want to get the one I did for documentary reasons to see all this kind of stuff I'd never really see otherwise. Yeah. So uh, I did think for, for them where they were joining two tunnels underground, burrowing through, you know, okay. so you're waiting on one end for them to burrow through to the other end, you know, like a hundred feet down and a thousand feet across there. And waiting, waiting, waiting for it to, to happen. And then the camera I was shooting, which was the feed, the main feed to go to uh, the news stations and the politicians. Mm -hmm. I'm looking through the camera lens and the uh, next thing I know, I'm getting these wavy lines. I think, well, there's one other guy down there. And I said, are you getting wavy lines? Because if you shoot on video cameras near a source of power, like a high source of power, it can it can affect the video. Mm -hmm. He said it wasn't. So then I had to walk all the way down the length of where the cable was. It was like a thousand feet of cable. And I saw it was somebody had laid it on top of a transformer. And uh, I said, I thought you guys were here yesterday and checked this out. And they said, yeah, we were. I said, well, was a transformer on yesterday? And they said, we don't know. And I said, I bet it wasn't. So we had to uh, reroute the cable and they had to stop the burrowing and uh, wait for us to be done. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Nothing ever really went right, you know. Did they eventually burrow through? Did the, it Yeah, it burrowed through as soon as we said we can go. And yeah. they burrowed through. Was that in Manhattan? No, that was in Hollywood. The Hollywood connection to the uh, San Bernardino Valley hmm. Universal. I didn't shoot a lot in this in New York because I moved out. I, I went back and shot something for the Olympics once, and uh, that was kind of it in New York. <laughs> Some people would be like, "It could be a whole you, your whole life. You could be one time I shot the Olympics, and meanwhile you're just like, oh yeah, yeah. One time I went back there to shoot the Olympics, but you know. yeah, it's just interviews. But yeah, no, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, right. I suppose you could. That's kind of what's what I wanted to do was get in a profession that it wouldn't be the same every day, and this was certainly not the same every day.
Um, it's just a, a bunch of different things. I used to shoot boxing matches and interview boxers, you know, uh, Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao, and De La Hoya and Mayweather. So we'd shoot that, and sometimes we'd go shoot the, the boxing match. I'd end up, like, right there at the uh, at the ring. And I'd look around and figure, wow, I didn't think I'd be here either. Do you you never really talk as the do you talk or you just kind of hide behind the camera a little bit? Uh, in terms of what I'm doing, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm picturing you like well for a second I was picturing you up close to the ring, and then I thought, were you? Yeah, ever... I'm not talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just filming them. Yeah, no, I, I you know it's just no, I'm not talking. Yeah, well, I was just thinking. Um, yeah, I don't. I was going to ask you if you ever get starstruck, but then I thought, well, it's kind of different. You're a little bit removed from anybody, but I guess well, I can ask anyway. Well, I could. Yeah, with a boxing match, you really don't have time to talk to them. You're kind of busy. Yeah. You got like you got a minute between rounds, and then I want to say, "Hey, how's it going up there, man?" Yeah. I mean, pick it up, man. I think you're losing. But I would. Uh, well, I do interviews with celebrities, and um, you know, I did press junkets for a while. We spent a day or two with them in a room. And you could talk to them then, and you can get kind of, you know, I never really say I know these people because you really can't judge somebody yeah, for a day with them and under circumstances where, for the most part, they're really good about knowing this is a job for them and us, you know, and they can be friendly, some more friendly than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I rarely took pictures. Maybe my whole life I took two or three pictures with any celebrity. The one I wanted to get and I got was Muhammad Ali. And I was doing a show. Um, I, don't, I used to work for BT, and uh, somehow I got to do a show, which wasn't a BT show, but through BT, for the Wayland family. And we interviewed Al Gore and some other people who knew them. They were a gospel family, Will Smith. And then we did Muhammad Ali, who just happened to be in a hotel. We were there to shoot somebody else, and because of who we were doing it for, he agreed to. Uh, to do an interview. So it was like four or five of us in a room. They gave us a private room. And uh, so at the end of the shoot, um, I said, well, okay, I'd love to have a picture with you, you know? So he's a very accommodating guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, he puts his arm around me, you know, he has like the fist facing you and you're facing him with your fist and looking at each other. Mm-hmm. And the photographer's up there, you know, standard kind of thing. And he looks at me and it's like just this room full of people. And he says to me, he says, you call me nigger? I said, no, I didn't say that. And like I turned wider than I am. And then they take the picture. And it's like, it's like one of the worst pictures of me ever. And it's like, he's just a funny guy. And he knew when you said something like that to somebody that you would get that kind of reaction, you know? And I was the only white guy in the room too. So it wasn't like the kind of thing you want to have passed around. Oh, no. I mean, I can say that because that's what he said. And it was very fun, you know. Oh my was, God. Did you wet your pants at all? No, no, because I knew it was a joke. After after I, re, you know, recovered slightly. Yeah. <laughs> no one, I said, maybe one of these other guys said it. And I pointed to everyone else there. It was obvious no one else there said it. So, yeah. and I didn't say it. Do you ever think of filming? Like, is there a documentary that you'd like to film that hasn't been made by somebody else? Um, no. I mean, nowadays, there's a documentary in really 
just about anything. Yeah. There's some places maybe I wanted to go and see. But, I, you know, I worked up in Alaska for a little bit filming things, and that's kind of a place up in a Prudhoe Bay, which is one of the northernmost portions of Alaska where they're doing the oils. I was there a couple of times, so I've been there. Went to Africa, kind of thought that was cool. Mexico, China. Uh, I'm pretty happy and pretty grateful for what I've done. I don't really get jealous of what other people do because there's a lot that people film now. Yeah. That was kind of my thing when I started when I was a kid. I think I told you in the story that uh, I used to watch TV and you'd see all these different uh, productions, a documentary, and then it'd be a, a variety show and a sports show. And it occurred to me that what they all had in common was the camera person, the cameraman then, you know? And I thought, well, if I become a cameraman, I can kind of do all this stuff maybe. And that's kind of why I thought I'd do it. I don't know how that occurred to you. I just did. It's like, you know, uh, yeah, I was pretty young too, but it did. And uh, that's what stayed with me. It's like they, everything they do that's video or film, there's at least a cameraman. If no one else, there's a cameraman there, yeah. camera person. So I figured everything, you know, everything is open to me. If I can find work that pays and I can make a living doing this and just hustle, 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 hustle. I mean, you always do your last job, and sometimes my last job was my last job. But for the most part, you know, I worked really hard to, to make it work right. As a kid, I used to watch Santana, you know, go pay to see his concerts, and then I ended up being in a Santana video up in San Francisco. And that's the kind of moment, too, where you just stop and think, well, you know, here I am. Yeah, how did that happen again? Um, someone said we need somebody to come up here. I actually did audio for an interview. And uh was up in San Francisco and so I went up there and he was doing a video called Say It Again, which is one of the songs, which is a pretty nice song. And we were gonna interview him after he did the video. So we the video portion that we were at, he was just jamming for like two or three hours with his group in a sound stage. And I really just sat there for most of it. I wasn't doing anything. I just had lunch, you know, like provided lunch and just listened to their music like two or three hours. And at the very end, um, you know, I'm walking through the set and then someone told me later on, they saw me in the video and uh, the very end of the video, there I am walking through. <laughs> I mean, on purpose, you know, they, they definitely kept in. Just like, it seemed like as big as me and Carl Santana and some other guy. That's awesome. I'm going to have to look at that. You said it's for Say It yeah. Again? Say it again. All mm -hmm. right. And uh, though it's funny, I'm just like, I was taking some notes as you were talking a little bit. And I was like, there's just one thing that I'm sad you never filmed. And it's uh, those dead gophers that the guy had. In <laughs> no, but it's, it's there in my mind. Dead gophers. Yeah. Oh, it was crazy. That, that place, they had, you know, ladies day and like nobody would get anything done. This golf course had two golf courses, public courses adjoining each other. So it's 36 holes, acres and acres of property, and no cell phones at that time. So if they want to talk to you, they go on the, the radios, and you could just not answer. And <laughs> some of these guys are out there growing pot because this is back in the 70s because they had everything they needed. They had the land. They had all the supplies, the fertilizer. They had the water. They just pick a spot. Other guys are totally drunk. The first break was at probably eight in the morning and there were three three different places you would go. You would go either 
in a van, the hippie van that had the parrot where they're smoking the weed. You go over to the uh, park benches there where they were drinking, or you go to a third place where you didn't do anything. And this was underneath the end of the driving range. So every now and then you hear a ball, some guy really got a hold of one, just going <laughs> coming through the trees, which is why they made us wear hard hats. Same deal as in, as in the movie. Same kind of characters. I mean, like, the guy must have been working his course when he wrote this stuff. I I was driving a, like a four-ton or something, a big truck, and uh, I drove it over to the clubhouse. I didn't know what I was doing. And all these um, golf bags are there while they're in there drinking. You know, I had all the bags out there on the sidewalk, and I thought I'd put the truck in uh, reverse, but I put it in, like, fourth. And it just lurched forward and knocked over all these guys' clubs. You know, and uh, <laughs> I guess they weren't watching because I figured out how to get in reverse and, and took off. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was it was Caddyshack for all intent purposes. It was were they ago. were they like yellow hard hats? Yeah, city of L.A. hard hats. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I had to wear them, you know. And after the first break, not a lot got done. Maybe a third of people there were still able to do something. The third is that didn't sit at the park bench. You go in the in the van. <laughs> you were done at two thirty, so I mean two thirty. You had the rest of the day to yourself. Yeah, that's nice. Was well, kind of nice. I mean, it was a part time job, and then I went back to New York, and then I went back to California. Yeah, and you've been there ever since. Yeah, I was on a five year plan like forty years ago, thirty years ago, and it's still here. I had not intended on staying in California for more than five years. Yeah. It's kind of seductive in a, in a sense. You know, you can, I like to play sports. You can do that year round. Um, I was in the, doing what I wanted to do. You didn't need to have uh, the cost of living was lower because of the weather. So I eventually, you know, I just stayed, got married, had kids, got a car, two dogs, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, I think. Unless you have, yeah, any other memorable stories you want to throw out there? I think you've run the gamut. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, no, I mean, I've done just a bunch of stuff, you know, went uh, to uh, pretty much around everything I really want to do, I kind of done. I mean, I did a film where they had motorcycle gangs. Um, they had me do a shoot where I had to stay in the water and, and shoot uh, a boat, you know, walking, you know, it was a film, motion picture. I get out of water and Camera assistant says, hey, I hope they're paying you more. I said, why? He said, well, because there are alligators in that water. <gasps> no one ever told me that. He said, no, I guess they didn't tell you that. And uh, that was uh, that was it. I did a lot of stunts. You know, I enjoy doing stunt work, too, shooting stunts. You just never know what's going to go wrong. Yeah. Did you ever, I mean, for the most part, they've all gone okay. But it's the excitement. Uh, no, they didn't all go okay. Um <laughs> I did a stunt where when you shoot uh, going through a glass, you know, people go burst through a glass window. Mm -hmm. uh, you're supposed to make sure the glass is like candy glass so it, it breaks easily. And we were shooting this in Florida. So the stunt guys went out and they had to replace the glass that was in this abandoned warehouse on the second story. So they, they put in what they thought was candy glass. And when, when you run up to the glass and burst through it, they have little squibs so that it makes it even look more dramatic. Just before the stunt person hits the glass, they hit the squibs. So a little it, blood comes on the glass. 
No, I guess it'd be more like, you know, uh, explosive squibs. Oh, okay. So it blows it out. So it's like even bigger. Gotcha. So these guys apparently didn't do a very good job. And, and the guy ran through a plate glass window, and which is where you have these huge shards of glass coming out, which can really kill you. And I happen to be underneath it shooting it. So they're all raining down on me. And this guy who eventually ended up in a hospital is lucky that it didn't go down, you know, hit an artery because uh, they probably would have killed him on a set. That didn't work out so well for him. I did a, a stunt where uh, they wanted to shoot horses coming at us, you know, like a herd of horses. Mm-hmm. So they put us, they, we were like in the bushes there, and they, and they put a stunt guys behind us to pull us out if there was a problem. Well, you know what? That wasn't going to happen. I mean, by the time you know it was a problem, it's too late, you know, stamping the horses. And they said, listen, you don't have to worry about the first couple of horses because they can see you. What you have to worry about is the last group of horses because they don't even know what they're running into. And then they, of course, ran, and they didn't really hit me. I think they got one other guy. Wait, what kind of contraption are you on when these horses are? Like, you know, on your knees with a camera. Wait, what? Yeah, they, they could have done that better. They could have put cameras down there that were, you know, unmanned. But they wanted to get the whole kind of like, you know, handheld look. So we did that. So you're on your knees with a camera and horses come running at you. Um, yeah, so hopefully they'll see that the stunt, they had the stunt crews that weren't working stand behind you and, and do that. I thought that was kind of silly. <laughs> I thought they could have planned it. I did, a, I did a car stunt where the uh, car just got away from the driver. He almost ran us over. He had to go to hospital because we were down, down a couple hundred yards and he just got lost control and he was just like driving crazy. He couldn't stop himself. If you're going to last doing this, you have to be kind of real lucky. You don't get hurt. You don't get sick. You know, you stay in fairly good shape. But it's a pretty demanding job. Yeah. All right. Well, we're at an hour, so we should probably. I don't know if I. I kind of feel like I want to let you keep going, but I don't want to force it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I wrote this stuff down, I mean, but it's all kind of the same, just different all the time. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see the different things I did, which is what I want to do. I wanted to just have an opportunity to see the world and get paid to do it and get fed, all of which they kind of do for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me twice. Life is meaningless. We're all going to die. Good to talk to you. All right. Bye. Bye.